Hello, and welcome to Still Digging, presented by the Archeo RPG Collective, the bi-weekly YouTube live stream where a group of archaeologists get together to discuss archaeology, role-playing games, and pop culture. The audio was taken from the live stream. We apologize for any audio hiccups. Now, enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Still Digging. I realize now my script is on the side, so I'm going to have to turn my head for a second. Uh, we are a group of archaeologists, behind the scenes stuff, uh, who are who will be talking about archaeology, gaming, and pop culture. Um, I'll let our esteemed panel of archaeologists introduce themselves, so please introduce yourselves. All of us at once. Yeah. There you go first. <laughs> Chicken. <laughs> I lost my screen. Hey, uh, my name's Sarah Head. I am, I mean, I'm horrible at these. I, I host the Archie Fantasies podcast when it's running, and I swear it's coming back. Just give me some time. Um, I also started doing reaction vids to uh, Scott Walter's America on Earth show, and <laughs> I am a CRM archaeologist. I dig holes for a living. And I do science in the field because I am a scientist. I don't know. I don't have anything else. Yes, my hair is purple. Um, I'm Tom Cuthbertson. I also do CRM archaeology for a firm in Northern Virginia in the DC metro area for the most part. Uh, so I do a lot of the digging and also get to run some crews. Um, uh, this whole public outreach stuff is a little bit new to me still. I do a little bit of uh, uh, nonprofit work with archaeology in the community. Um, by the way, if you want to give us money, um, <laughs> the uh, website is archaeologyincommunity.com or uh, bit.ly slash AITC underscore DC. Um, there's a donation spot on there. Uh, we run a whole bunch of really cool programs for kids for the most part. Um, all of them so far is free, and we want to keep them that way. So, uh, put your money to work. Um, let's see, interests. Uh, I recently got into the pseudo archaeology stuff, community archaeology junk, um, and some hybridity things and multivalent interpretations of material culture. Um, okay, that's enough talking. Somebody else. Okay, I guess that leaves me. Uh, hi, uh, my name is uh, Ama, or um, it's really Amanda, but I prefer Ama. Uh, I am a first year PhD student um, at the um, Ainu and Indigenous Studies Center at uh, Hokkaido University in Northern Japan. Uh, I have uh, additional degrees in East Asian Studies and Public Archaeology, but most of my experience in training in archaeology has been in Japan. Uh, I've spent the last six plus years working on uh, an excavation on the island of Reibun off the northern tip of Japan. Uh, it's called the Reibun Archaeological Field School, if you want to check that out online. Uh, my uh, volunteering had to do a lot with um, actually uh, assisting a group of field school students from uh, different parts of, of uh, the world, say Canada, the US, UK, uh, kind of uh, sorry, acclimate to life in Japan, as well as um, I assisted with um, the um, 
with the finds laboratory that we had on site. And then that kind of culminated in my, my research, which is looking at the public outreach that they were doing on site and really studying how the community was impacted by the outreach. So that's kind of my interest here now. And I'm going to try and continue that uh, with my degree here. So I also uh, do a bit of art on the side. Uh, if you check out my Twitter, I, I do some RPG-related art as well as uh, archaeology-related artwork. I guess, and finally, we're back to me. Uh, I'm Bill Ochter. Uh, I'm a contract archaeologist from Maryland. Uh, I've mainly focused on historical archaeology and the region surrounding Chesapeake Bay. Um, I've been a lifelong board games, tabletop role-playing games, video games, going back to Pong. I'm OG. Uh, I go back to Pong uh, and pretty much anything else. And um, as a philosophy minor back in my undergrad times, I'm also interested in the examining the world theoretically. So I'm the theoretical guy of the, uh, of the things here. Um, so what, we're, what are we here for? Why are we just talking, doing like introductions? So the goal of the show is to provide an insight into the world of archaeologists uh, talking amongst themselves, that sort of hidden world when we get together, those secret cabals that Grant Hancock is sure that we're all doing. We are no, letting you in. Deal with that later. I just hope you know. I know, I know. I'm just it's, it's called foreshadowing. You know, we're in the biz here. We're just sort of teasing for what's coming up. Um uh there will be plenty of archaeological talk, but since most of us are also trained anthropologists, um we will use the knowledge of interpreting uh other aspects as well, uh, such as uh, gaming and pop culture. Um, anybody else sort of with an idea of like why we are here? Uh, I came to game, but clearly I'm back. <laughs> no. <laughs> Someday I'll actually show up. Yeah. <laughs> okay. okay um, yeah. I, I know. I know we were. The, so this idea for this tabletop RPG. Um, we, I don't, I don't remember how do we, how do we start doing this? Um, I think Bill put the call out for it. Yeah. Uh, or talk to me at a Mac conference or or somebody at a Mac conference, and and that kind of got the ball rolling. Um, but I think um, part of the idea is that we can use. I mean, D and D has gotten super popular again. Tabletop role playing in general, um, and it's kind of a safe place to talk about difficult. Um, difficult concepts within culture itself and, and the production of knowledge and um, things that are pertinent to archaeology. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, we all sort of got together uh, based upon our sort of collective experience uh, trying to do uh, tabletop role playing. Um, so we've been playing Dungeons and Dragons now for I just realized that we've been off and on. Not, not everyone has, was there at the beginning, but by now we've been playing for about a year and we're about to transition over to sort of creating our own sort of homebrew world of archaeology, which is going to be very tinged and very archaeologically themed. And the idea was we're going to present that to the public. We're going to do live stream stuff. We're going to be talking <laughs> and so forth. And so we're still in the planning stages of that. Um, the current ETA is that episode zero is going to be sort of shot and probably streamed online sometime in July with us really going into this new world uh, beginning in September. Um, but uh, I've, we've noticed that sort of our last couple D&D sessions, we, because we're archaeologists, um, we're busy and this springtime, almost summer, 
or now we're almost summer 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 today or summer tomorrow because um, my kittens are all one year old <laughs> uh, well, a lot of us are out working in the field which makes coming to a game session really hard so for the past couple game sessions we actually haven't been playing we have just been sort of chatting amongst ourselves online because as you can see here we are sort of spread out i should actually put that out like Tom's in Northern Virginia, Sarah's in Pennsylvania, and Ama. Ama's coming to us from the future. Uh, yeah. She's somewhere in Japan in the future. <laughs> she's so she's, she's already seen this episode, and she knows how much of a train wreck it's going to become. I'm going to tap out early. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Gets a really bad around 10 minutes. Oh, we, we're almost out. Oh. <laughs> And so basically the last time uh, we did this, we got the idea of like, why don't we just stream this out and have other people uh, join in? I mean, that's why we're going to sort of live stream. We're monitoring the chat. Um, so if you you know want to participate along with us, you're more than welcome to. Unless you're abu abusive, then we'll just kick you out. Um, but uh, other than that, uh, we figured this would be a conversation or talk about archaeology, talk about games, talk about whatever the hell we want to, really. Um, with a mukbang, so. All right. So, <laughs> so speaking of which, um, does anybody want to jump in with like the first thing that's sort of on their mind? No. Well, so we started. We're talking about the tabletop RPG, and I saw an article earlier that I think Bill, you retweeted, the um, uh, talking about mixed race characters and racism and some of that stuff in in um, in uh, in just the structure of Dungeons and Dragons. So um, uh, I don't know who, what our audience is at this point, but just so we're all on the same page, races in, in, in the real world is completely made up. It's all genetic variants um, and it's, no, it's not a real thing. It's a social construct. It doesn't mean anything. Um, but in Dungeons and Dragons, it plays into very colonialist tropes about you know, different races having different abilities or weaknesses or whatever. Um, and part of the thing that I think we were, we had been talking about addressing in this, in this homebrew was either using everybody or setting it up. So everybody's a, a single D and D race with variations around that race or, or making the mechanics a little bit softer. So it's not, it's more uh, cultural attributes as opposed to racial attributes for their, you know, um, mechanics for uh, how a game is played. I, I think no, I think it's important that you brought that up because it has been one of the things that's been catching us up a little is the whole discussion of, well, I mean, I love D&D. &D. My parents play D&D. &D. I play D&D &D because my parents play D&D. &D. So I'm like, I'm used to it, that kind of stuff. But when you really start looking at it, like Bill said, we're all trained anthropologists. When you really start looking at it from like a cultural perspective, um, you really do start to see the, I don't think it's intentional, but it is basically racism because you're classifying each one of the races. And of course, humans always come out on top, which makes sense at the time. Um, but it's, it's a very stark breakdown. Like elves are good at this. Dwarves are good at this. You know, humans are good at this. And it, and that kind of a thing. So when we were discussing this, we we're like, let's just make a non-human race. And Bill was actually mentioning this, like he was picking a, um, he picked just a generic 
not a generic race, but he picked one race and everybody's going to be that race. But yeah, and then we're going to have to break it down culturally because that only that reflects the real world a lot better than giving like racial bonuses because that that doesn't mean anything. But cultural traits, I think we do still have to be a little bit careful there, though, because we don't want to. I don't want us to fall into that whole idea of primitive versus civilized and one is better than the other because I'm having a lot of issues with that right now while I'm reading Graham Hancock's new book and it's really good me. Um, just that whole idea that um, there's primitive people and then there were advanced people and it really kind of pisses me off because the point is not primitive and advanced. The point is um, going back to us being humans, we only adapt new technology when we need it and when something isn't working for us anymore. So when you're looking at a group and you're like, oh, they're more primitive, it's like, no, they just don't have the same problems that the other group had. So they didn't need those solutions or they found another way to solve that problem that you're not recognizing. So anyway, that's my rant. Awesome rant, no. But I think that also goes and talks a lot about, you know, fantasy and kind of the, the the history of fantasy in a lot of ways. If you look at, you know, some of the problems have uh, people have with, you know, Tolkien and whatnot, it's it's apparent there too. And Tolkien is a lot of informed a lot of, you know, our kind of modern fantasy genre. So it's yeah. not something that's even isolated in D D, but it's it's something that's been ongoing for a while now. Yeah, I mean, even even to the sort of more modern interpretations, like the uh, the the Rings movies, which are some of my favorite movies. Um, but it's sort of blatantly obvious that it's the West uh, with their sort of all Caucasian-looking creatures, no matter what, the, what mythical race they are, they're all Caucasian. And it's the darker folks from the East who are all the evil folks. And even the evil humans are a non-white uh, humans uh, during this. Um, it's It's sort of like it's baked into sort of this idea of modern uh, fantasy. Um, so part of what I think we're, we're trying to do here is sort of like jump, you know, trying to do the classic uh, post-structuralist deconstruction here. Uh, we're, trying to take, we're trying to take apart the tropes. We're trying to, to, to reclaim it. Um, you know, if you want to like a behind the scenes stuff, I'm trying to like look into this from like a very like post-colonial idea. So using like, you know, homie Baba and, you know, uh, Franz Fanon. Uh, to sort of like, uh, you know, sort of temper me when, you know, look at this, because, um, oh, if I didn't mention this already, I'm, I'm the dungeon master for the group. Uh, so yeah. I'm the one trying to put all this stuff together uh, right now. So, um, so yeah, so currently right now, the idea is to use the Dungeons and Dragons race of the tieflings. And if you're not familiar with tieflings, uh, picture in your mind uh -oh. a humanoid who is um i know everyone's flashing all circle stuff we don't get <laughs> sick but uh picture a humanoid um uh, with the characteristics of the classic sort of victorian idea of devils uh, or, or late medieval uh victorian ideas of devils horns pitch tails some of them have cloven feet uh, and so forth um the skin can be various colors of like blues and purples and reds and stuff and their eyes can be sort of a single uh, translucent like red or yellow or things like that 
And in the Dungeons and Dragons world, these these are uh, a race of creatures which have been cursed uh, by demonic beings. Uh, because in the world of Dungeons and Dragons, devils, demons, and angels all exist, as well as various other gods. Um, there's a whole multiverse, and there's a whole pantheon uh, in that world. Um, so we're adapting sort of the idea of the tiefling um, because it is sort of a weird, problematic character. Not, not necessarily problematic, probably not the right word. But um, well, the concepts that go into the tiefling are, um, but not. Again, I don't think any of this is intentional, which is the point of taking it apart. Like the, the point of having a deeper examination is to go past the surface and look at why things are the way they are. Um, so it's like, I don't think the tiefling is intentionally problematic, but like you were saying, it's the Victorian idea of a demon. And, you know, you were once again, you were saying, um, you know, how all of the races are Caucasian white in a way. There's the tieflings kind of fall into that. Like they're, they're a pale gray color, you know, they're white, they're, pinkish. I don't know. I was trying to see if I could share some of the pictures up here, but I don't want to like copyright people. Like there's some really great art out here about the tieflings, but I don't want to be like, hey, look at this art that distribute people. Um, oh, you got anything? I could draw something real quickly, but no, I think I think in terms of, of usage and whatnot, we should probably have that arranged ahead of time in terms of giving artists yeah. you know, due credit. Yeah, I mean, I wish there was a way that I could like share my screen because then you could see people's signatures. But anyway, I mean, all you gotta do is, is search for Tifling and it'll pop up. It's it's spelled the way it sounds. So, um, but I mean, the problems with the Tieflings are that that like they're corrupted. They're you know the, the, we have this concept of pure versus evil, and that right there is a construct. You know what what's evil, what's good. We're going with the Victorian idea of it. Which ooh, can we just talk about the Victorians for a while? Um, but before we do that, I see we have yeah. our first question uh, from the chat. <laughs> Thank you very much, VTEX Rules. Um, so our first question is, uh, archaeologist and avid D&D player here, uh, how do you all first become interested in the intersection between archaeology and RPGs? So I think some of it, at least for me, was it, it's definitely getting into the more of the mainstream Mm, maybe not mainstream media, but it's definitely becoming a much more widespread media outlet in these, you know, uh, um, live play games and gameplay uh, podcasts and things like that are becoming more and more popular. And it's an easy way to introduce anthropological topics into an easy, like a, uh, I guess a, a rich story or potentially rich story, depending on how good we're playing that day. Yeah. Um, and that, that, I mean, that was kind of where I was, that's the angle I was coming at from it. Um, I mean, I played, I played a little when I was in middle and high school, but I really haven't played until we started doing this again last year. So, um, I mean, for me, it's, uh, I mean, I don't really have any hobbies outside of archaeology anymore, so may as well fit some of this into that as well. Yeah. I mean, for, for me, it goes back to sort of, sort of the beginning playing these things. I mean, um, the earliest sort of like role-playing games I've, I've, I've played have all been leaned heavily on the entire trope, 
relic hunter. You go into the dungeon or the crypt and you're searching for lost ancient treasures. The idea of their secret knowledge in the world for that previous civilizations have. And all you have to do is go through this dungeon and go through all these traps and things like that. And you can unearth things that can alter the world. Um, and, you know, as, as a kid, those are all fascinating things. As an adult, you realize that uh, doesn't do credit for the people who were living back then. You're, you're superimposing other things. But, I mean, I would, I would argue that like a game like Dungeons and Dragons has always been archaeological um, mm -hmm. from the very beginning. Um, with that I sort of... I was a huge yeah. fan of archaeology. Yeah. yeah, with that whole reliance upon like the... The, the, the relic hunting motif, you're jumping right into sort of the pop culture view of archaeology right there, which is another reason why we're doing this. Um, we're sort of like trying to find ways to sort of come back um, the popular culture uh, ideas of archaeology. Archaeology isn't about finding the big shiny thing or to finding the ancient thing that's going to change the world. Um, if you watch, you know, if you watch Indiana Jones, if you play Tomb Raider, um, I at this point I the, I cringe because they typically destroy the structure um, that they're in, which are most likely the most valuable mm. uh, cultural resources in there to get some stupid piece of gold. But they uh, got the thing. The thing is important. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, and, and I mean this. I mean, it, it, uh, who among us can say that they weren't? heavily influenced by Indiana Jones growing up trying to get into archaeology. Uh, any archaeologist I spoke, yeah, exactly. They'll say something so it pops up. Oh, <laughs> something so um, it, it belongs in a museum. Yeah. Um, um, but that, that um, I, I was just thinking about this the other day, actually. So um, Temple of Doom is the only one with any community community archaeology in it. I'm, I'm going to argue that. Um, <laughs> uh, so, aside, we'll, 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 we have to acknowledge there are a lot of terrible racist tropes throughout the movie. Um, but uh, the the whole like the whole setup for the movie is essentially they get dropped in this village, and the village elder is asking the archaeologist to recover something that the community had lost. Um, and and return it to them, which spoiler alert, he does. Um, uh, but that's, I mean, as as far as any popular archaeology movie I can think of, about as close as to public archaeology I think I've ever seen in a movie. Can anybody jump on that? <laughs> oh, no, I mean, using unpaid slave labor to do your excavation is absolutely, uh, you know, the ideal for public archaeology. Yeah, that part. <laughs> I just meant the interaction part. Just the, that first scene and that last scene. Everything in the middle is just terrible racist tropes. Can I can I jump in real quickly? Um, I just wanted to say um, if we do have viewers in the audience that you know if there's any term that's unfamiliar that comes up in the chat, something oh, like yeah. community or public archaeology, do feel free to to chime in and, and ask for for more definitions. I think that's kind of going to be what I'm going to end up doing for a lot of this podcast is making sure that you know. The questions are asked for people that maybe don't have a background but an interest like in archaeology yes absolutely thank you thank you i know that is a, an issue i have had uh speaking to the public is really getting in the weeds and getting lost in the weeds and then no one can follow me there 
it's easy to get lost when because it's that jargon thing and again it's an oh, unintentional really you know we know what we're talking about <laughs> sometimes well, well, that's kind of the problem though Let me erase this. <laughs> so, so let's let's jump back to a little bit of archaeology and um, let's let's you know. So last time, last time, like you didn't see this, um, but last time we were talking, um, we sort of got the idea of our show here, still digging um, by brainstorming a little bit, and we bumped into the works of Sir Mortimer Wheeler. Uh, Tom, specifically this book. That I'm I'm saying words, so it shows up on the screen. This one, which for a lot of people uh, of certain generations and certain things. So if we have any like uh, UK uh, viewers right now, you're more than familiar with him. He was constantly on the BBC. Uh, even some American viewers from the 70s. Um, and you can maybe still find clips on YouTube today. Um, he's at this point now. He's probably most famous for his mustache, uh, sort of his look. But then his actual uh, writings or discoveries or things like that, he had a very unique look. Check that I would out. say that that's a very uh, American perspective there, though. I do think yeah, that... absolutely. I think it's the American. The Americans know him because of how he looks. <laughs> I would say there's definitely a, a different uh, understanding of, of him and his contribution to archaeology in the UK. He, I think he, uh, with the book I was looking for, that I, I, they, I think we how we got on top on that topic was the uh, um, whatever textbook I was, I was flipping through had him as the, basically the inventor of, of what we would consider a, a unit as opposed to just trench archeology span as is um, common in the early, early 20th century. It was all landscape architects digging trenches across sites looking at stratigraphy. And by, and by that, we were talking about the difference between sort of randomly digging a hole in the ground and pulling things out as opposed to a, a unit, which is a controlled, defined space that could either be like five feet by five feet, one meter by one meter, and uh, sort of measured out to a perfect square and dug systematically uh, to control what we call a stratigraphy, the changes between the soils on there and it's a, it's a great tool for archaeologists to sort of tell time uh one of the tools we use to tell time um deposits are on top of each other typically um the is newer than the deposit underneath um so that's that's what we mean when we're talking about like test units uh versus trenches <laughs> however Amla was nice enough uh to point out that <laughs> he may have had a taking a little more credit because uh, early in his career, he was not alone in this. He was part of a husband and wife uh, archaeological team. His his wife, Tessa, uh, was also a fully trained uh, archaeologist in, in, in her own right, and her own work is is worthy of study all by itself. So, uh, I'm I'm <laughs> or at least say something so people can see your picture. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, I don't know. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, can they still see the, the kind of smaller image down at the bottom of the screen? Kind. Yes. It, it, it doesn't come. It doesn't, just doesn't show up as well. Okay. I really, yeah, I, it's a really great sketch. Huh? <laughs> I, yeah, I, I thought maybe I'd just kind of do this as, as my background con uh, contribution as well while we're talking so that if, you know, a concept isn't clear that this way we have kind of a visual representation of, you know, what 
things that we're kind of talking about. <laughs> that sounds like the worst RPG game ever. What's the six, the RPG. <laughs> <laughs> so for, those, for those who aren't looking, we we had another great uh, question come. Through. Great idea, I'm not gonna lie. Um, uh, once again, from Vtex Rules, thank you, thank you for your contributions. Uh, I'll aren't reading the uh, chat. Um, I love this. Uh, what do you think of RPGs as a teaching tool? For example, for my public archaeology class last semester, I ran an RPG session attempting to simulate the Section 106 process. Sarah, I, you I, laugh. I, you laugh at that, but that is part of my underpinning for our D and D campaign. There is going to be some compliance archaeology. Oh, man. So for those who are, the same way, I need. You're I ruining need. my escapism. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So does someone else want to explain section one hundred six, or I, I can do it? Yeah, uh, you you stuck your foot out there, so. All right. So in the United States, um, there is the National National Historic Preservation Act, uh, which sort of dictates how place historic places um, are registered within the United States, whether it's an old building um, or an archaeological site or a traditional cultural place for a, for a Native community. Um, the National Historic Preservation Act. This is a very dumbed down version. Please, if you're really curious, Google this. Um, but specifically, Section 106 of the National Historic Preservation Act um, is, well, one, doesn't exist anymore, but it exists because they rewrote the laws and the, the actual title number has changed uh, since then. But Section 106 is a way, as a shorthand for historic preservation professionals, particularly. Um, contract archaeologist or state archaeologist um, to discuss the process of evaluating um, historic archaeological sites as historic places. Um, and typically this is done uh, for when what's called a federal undertaking, which basically means that something that's going to involve federal money or federal action, whether it's the government approving a contract or the government itself is actually funding or partially funding uh, on some sort of development project um, that could possibly affect a historic resource, um, it first must be evaluated. Um, so this is typically done by contract archaeologists because most states can't afford a full team of archaeologists to have on all the time. Um, so a contract archaeologist will come out to a place, they will test the area, um, and they will give a recommendation uh, about whether or not they believe there are resources on this, on that site and the level of impact that uh, the potential project or whatever is going to be is going to have upon it. That's sort of a very quick, off the top of my head, uh, description on this. So. I, I do want to okay. point please, out, though. Thing if I'm missing anything. No, no. Well, I, no, what you said is, is all, that's, yes, all of those things. Also... Um, our role as archaeologists is very much a background role. Um, we, we as the con well, as contract archaeologists at least, um, don't actually have a final say in this process. We, we give, we do our analysis, we give our recommendations, but everything is then left up to um, whatever the agency are is and and uh, groups that are identified that are 
recognized as, as um, concerned parties or stakeholders. Um, so we're, we're, it's, it's a, it can be extremely frustrating, especially for a contract archaeologist, because you go and you do all this work and then it's just kind of out of your hands. And what happens to it is just, it's part of the process. <laughs> And, which is good and bad in certain ways. Yeah. And the thing is, um, you may not be aware of this if you're not currently an archaeologist or a contract archaeologist. That is the majority of archaeology that takes place in the United States and in most countries that have similar types of laws. Um, but most people don't really have a understanding of Most people have an understanding of archaeology as being something that they see on TV. And it's typically like through the academic model uh, with sort of big open areas that are sort of these large trenches and pits are opened up and there's you know hundreds of people out there digging dirt and displacing things out there that kind of stuff does happen um but that's not the most what's happening most of what's happening is are these sort of smaller evaluations uh where reports get written and they get filed in the state and most people will never read them because they go behind closed doors uh, so most archaeology that happens in the country is stuff that people never actually see know about so it's i think it's an important thing within sort of this idea of making a game and making it edgy you know part of the thing here is to sort of have an educational element to that is how do we explain this how do we get this out there to a general audience um with that so the idea then is to try to incorporate those ideas into the game uh, so that you the person whether you're an archaeologist or not can get a little feel of what it's like uh to be a contract archaeologist but I, I, a fantasy I, contract archaeologist. You can shoot like fireballs. Slightly less boring. It's maybe yeah. slightly less frustrating. You're a Teflon archaeologist who can move the dirt with a spell. Isn't there yeah. actually like a square yeah. dirt spell? There's a cantrip yeah. that you, you can move, I believe. And uh, my other character move a one meter square of dirt. I'm like, perfect. <laughs> Done. Right. It just comes out. You just like move the whole thing to the sides. Like, hey, stratigraphy, and then when you're done, you can just slowly like sift it. It's perfect. This this solves the problem of archaeology being destructive. We can just put it all right back. And there's that. Pick it out. Look at it. Put it back. Done. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't have to worry about the cap. If you know how big the overburden is, you take out just that amount, you peek underneath, are there any features in the soil? Nope, you put it right back down. Hey, could you imagine, though, if that came out clean, what the stratigraphy would look like? Like, you could just, and then you map all your shit, you're good to go. You wouldn't find much, but. It's, it's like a soil boring, but bigger. Yeah. Well, I'm like, it's clear. This would be great because then you could just like keep moving the dirt until you actually found like the the feature, and then you wouldn't have to waste all that time digging to the feature. You could just be like put the stuff back that isn't part of the feature. <laughs> be like all of this lost dirt. You don't have to work <laughs> nightmares is what we're talking about is nightmares. I mean, this is this is going to have to be a scene when we start. <laughs> it's going to be have to be some after, sort of after, the, after the one hundred six negotiations. Then then yeah. we're going. Right, moving the dirt. Yeah, I'm still struggling to find a way to make excavation and the archaeological uh, investigation fun and interesting. <laughs> I'm watching on the I think it's going to take some work. That's, that's still workshopping. <laughs> Mm. Um, I'm going to need you... to draw my character when we finally make them all Teflings because I love them. 
I do I do want to add though that so all these all these gray literature reports they go to the state but they are available but you have to request them and generally speaking a lot of the archaeological data is only available to archaeologists so I think part of what we also need to do is get it get those reports and and assemblages and data sets kind of of like on the radar of academics because they're so there's there's just so much data and i i can't tell you how many times i've been told by academics that i'm not a real archaeologist okay so here's something else i want to talk about because this animosity between uh crm people and academic people um like i don't encounter it too much which is kind of shocking considering most of my online acquaintances are academics um i get a lot of uh when i'm working out in the field though i get a lot of um field people who kind of are annoyed with academic people and what i'm starting to notice there is that uh the field people have this concept of what the the academic archaeologist is like and they're irritated at the the stereotype and and academic archaeologists have no fucking clue what we do like they have absolutely no fucking clue what we do and so it's not even like they're they're being mean towards us like it's not like they're discounting us they just literally don't understand what we do and on the one hand that's kind of a failure on their part they really need to maybe i don't know educate themselves considering we outnumber them like what four to one or something like that yeah. But at the same time, it would really help people in the field would maybe like tune that shit down a little. Um, the academics are not our enemies because they don't even know we exist. Yeah. Do you think that in part though has to do with? Um, I, I think you were you had a conversation earlier on Twitter about um, uh, where people learn how to practice. You know the the, the basic tenets of it. it. Seems like it's learned a lot on the job. It is in terms of. And so, and that could be part of it too. If you're in academia and you don't get that chance to interface with that information and it's all more skill-based in the field, then you're gonna have this continuation where people aren't really learning that aspect of, of, of archeology. span Yeah, I think we need to, as a field and as a whole, I think we need to work together better to kind of intermingle. Uh, we need to get academics out in a CRM field and we need to put CRM people in an academic setting because, <clears throat> What we do is very different, uh, but it's still archaeology. It's just academics tend to deal more with they they tend to deal more with like the finished product. Like you guys get the really nice what we would consider a phase three. So you're already going out to a place where you already know there's supposed to be stuff there. I'm not mad. It's just like what you guys what and I shouldn't be using that kind of language. What I have noticed that academics don't see is the phase one and the phase two. They don't see me trudging 10 miles back and forth across a mud soaked field, looking to see if I can find an artifact on the surface so that I don't have to go back out there and dig 80 centimeter holes. I, that, that, that amount of labor is not being recognized and it's also being discounted like it's not when it is noticed by an academic it's not considered real archaeology they don't see that as me actually surveying or me actually doing archaeology they are like oh you're just digging a hole and seeing if there's something there and it's like yeah that's exactly what i'm doing 
and it being negative is part of science. It's it's not just me getting paid to go dig a hole for 10 hours a day. Anyway, would, you, would you say that that's also indicative, though, of like societally, like how we, you know, approach, say, labor versus, you know, more information based um, work? Yeah, no. And I, I mean, and when I speak with my my academic acquaintances and, and some of them are actually my friends, like. I get that the level of research that they are doing is like beyond anything that I am ever required to do for the field. Doesn't mean I can't do it. It just means I'm not, it's not required for me to do it. And like, I get budget, that. well, and there's that too. I mean, we're, we're very budget driven, um, yeah. which is a, it's a handicap, but it's a reality of the field. You know, I mean, it's, you have to learn to work within those parameters. I can do that kind of stuff in my spare time, and I do on the topics that I I want to do. Um, but that's all on my time. So if I have worked 10, 10 hour shifts and I'm on the first day of my four day, I'm going to sleep. <laughs> you know, like, I don't have time to do research that day. So I don't have as much time to do research as an academic does. But at the same time, I think if I was doing 10 hours of research every day for 10 days, I think I'd be mentally burned out just as physically burned out as I am doing field work. So, I mean, it's, it's a trade off in that. I don't think either of us are really acknowledging the work and the labor that the other does because we don't interact with it. I think my, go ahead. I mean, I think a lot of it, I mean, not, not a lot of it, but I think another, another point of, of this is that this sort of uh resentment to the academic is not necessarily meant to the person at the university. Um, it may be aimed to the MAs, MSs, and PhDs within their own firms or the agencies involved. That's um, you will you will you will hear shovel bums, of which is the very nice term um, we like to call ourselves the those who are field techs. Really? Uh, the ones, they, they like to call themselves shovel bums. And I, I was very proud of it. When I was a shovel bum, I was proud to call myself a shovel bum. We um, really created this whole like martyr complex around it. Well, I, I think I think CRM archaeologists are basically deep in the martyr complex. Um, sure. they, they're, they are, you know, they, 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 they are definitely not well paid. Um, they definitely don't get good benefits. They don't get good work conditions. You? They don't have good prospects for continuous continuous Wait. employments. They don't have good uh, prospects for you know advancement. But they do it because they are passionate uh, about archaeology and things that are out there. Um, so what you'll do is it's it's not it's not atypical at all to hear somebody who only has a bachelor's degree who's been digging in the field for you know ten years really annoyed about that new MA or that new PhD who just came from university who has never done a proper phase one, uh, which is sort of the um, open field investigations. Like you're, you're doing okay. acres at a time. Okay. Hang on. To yeah. be fair, you don't even have to be digging that long to be annoyed by that person. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to explain. First time, what that's. <laughs> first time newly minted whoever comes out into the field and they've never dug a hole in their life. And then they start telling you how to do your job. You're going to get annoyed. It's just the way. Oh, it boy. Had, I, we've had a couple of those on yeah, some I mean, very big projects with tight deadlines. And it is absolutely infuriating. It's just gonna happen. <laughs> we, had, I, we had one. 
we had a tech tell somebody who was just a BA who had been working with us for a couple of years <laughs> that it takes like a half hour to put a unit in. Like to, to just just like set the square up, half hour. That's what she said. I was like, who taught you how to do this? <laughs> what how how is she how are they setting up the unit? Like I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how it could possibly take you that long. Oh, you know what I saw though? I mean, completely random topic here. Um, I was going through the forestry supply magazine, and apparently they have various lengths of rope that are already marked off. And so all you have to do is like lay the rope out and it makes your unit for you. You don't have to do math anymore. <laughs> and I'm like, that's pretty cool, actually. I mean, I can I can see how it could take a little longer to like tie it into a bigger grid or whatever. But if you're if it's if you're still in the evaluation stage and you're just like, there's a whole bunch of good stuff here, throw a unit in it, see if we can find a feature. Like it, it's just you just put it in. Like <laughs> I did I did work with a, a company one time, and the the person I got teamed up with was definitely struggling to put the unit in and would not accept help because I guess they were determined that they were going to do it themselves. And it, it I personally think it's kind of a two man job. I, I think it goes faster, but it does. That, it does. that did actually take quite a bit watching them continuously not get the unit right. Um, so yeah, I mean. So the key here for any aspiring archeologist, if you've learned nothing else in your math courses, you need to know the Pythagorean theorem. Uh, yeah. A square plus B square equals C square is your friend. That's how we make these nice little perfect square holes out in the middle of nowhere. So uh, VTech just chimed in again. Uh, VTech rules, as an academic archaeologist, the green needs to be better cooperation and communication between academia and CRM. That's why I want to develop internship programs with CRM firms at my university. Um, so actually, um, I'm uh, a, a, a Friend, colleague of mine uh, um, at is is starting a, a tenure position at a local university in fall, and she's already been like starting to talk to me about like, can we get somebody from your firm to um, just come and talk to students about what what work is like, or you know maybe we you know talk about doing like an internship program or something, which is something that my my, uh, my firm already does. Um, but more on the environmental science side, we, we do have archaeology specific interns, but it's it's much more rare than the um, the just environmental consulting internship. That sounds actually like a really great program. One of the things that um, I was really happy with in my master's was that we brought in a lot of different people uh, who were interacting with the public on on various, you know, in various different roles from people who were crowdfunding archaeology and, and having digs where the public participated in it uh, to people, you know, who had gone into other countries and, and set up um, heritage programs so that the local community could uh, basically um, develop their, their economic, um, their their local economic status while protecting their heritage. And I think, you know, more of those practical type um, interactions in the classroom are, are really missing in general across the board and, and really important to have. So that, that's really exciting to hear. The the public outreach is definitely becoming, based on some of the people I've talked to, is definitely becoming more of a um, a staple in, in anthropology and archaeology programs. Um, 
across the board. And I, I do, I do like seeing that trend. And I think there is definitely more of that, you know, how do you get a job? This is, and I'm, okay. I'm, I'm just gonna come out and say, it. I'm a huge Montpelier fanboy. Um, I have only nice things to say about my experience there and the stuff and the programs that they've done out there. Um, and I saw on their um, Instagram or Twitter or something that they they were actually had a day for their field school students how like how to set up a resume, how to set up your LinkedIn, how to apply for jobs, um, which is something that I I mean uh, I mean the field school experience that I had was nothing like that. Not saying that I didn't have a good field school. I thought it was a lot of fun. I learned a lot of good stuff. Um, but um, but that I mean having that. But I also did classical field school, so it's has nothing to do with American archaeology at all. Um, um, but seeing that, like, yeah, here, here are really what your job prospects look like. Here's really how you get your foot in the door. Um, let, let's, you know, get you set up so you're not, you know, flipping burgers or something or just not, like, not being able to use your anthropology degree. Yeah, and, into it. and and for those who aren't uh, as familiar with, with Montpelier, it's a, in southwestern Virginia, um, it's a um, it's the it's a former mansion site of James Madison, um, his home, and, and and a good chunk of the uh, plantation site um, that he was in there has been or is now under a trust as a nonprofit there. And that as part of that trust, they do continuing education and continued archaeological research. So it's a great example of sort of his third way of. Uh, archaeology that we sort of haven't been talking about at all. We have the academic archaeology, we have contract archaeology, but there's this whole nonprofit sector, um, especially associated with like house museums or some of these larger presidential uh, plantations, um, which are doing sort of their own public outreads. It's, it's a nonprofit public education uh, process. So that's an entire other wing of archaeology that's out there. So just in case anybody didn't know. So, um, Which, I mean, they're enjoying this. We're not talking about gaming. So, I propose. We'll come back to you. Want to come back to gaming? Let's go back to gaming. I propose that we now create a game that is happening. Sorry, my phone vibrated. That is happening at Mount Pillar, but it's supernatural white wolf based Cthulhu style. Oh, whoa. I mean, we, we, we might be able to get a player from there. <laughs> I'll talk to some people. See see if they'll sponsor us. <laughs> well, this is awesome, actually. Have Wild a, yeah. <laughs> a couple one-shots of that. You know, just put the Scooby-Doo yeah. thing together. Only we're all archaeologists, and we have to solve the mystery using archaeology. Yeah. Well, I mean, Smithers. to be fair, our, our, our okay. one-shot that uh, Tom and I were at at the Middle Atlantic Archaeology Conference back in March, yeah. uh, work did take place at a plantation, and it was very gothic horror. It's still in the right. world of Dungeons and Dragons, but it was definitely plantation gothic horror. Yeah, how did that go? I never heard anything about that. It was other than great. It was great yeah. until everybody got too drunk. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll at least take some of the blame for that one, <laughs> Mr. Mr. Shots. <laughs> I, and it wasn't my fault. I didn't buy most of those drinks. <laughs> <laughs> that was your first problem. Yeah. You and as a stressed out DM, I was the only sober person there because I'm trying to like run this yeah. cat, cat show. 
<laughs> but the players all did have a lot of fun, and we did yeah. we we got a little bit of interest in it. So that's that's a, that's a start. That's something. Yes. Oh no, it was great. I, I had a great time. The the folks yeah. there who joined us were awesome. They were good sports, yeah, maybe, and they were they were excited. Maybe we need to get like a like a panel session to try it. If we can, if we can get oh, a good. Oh my god, that would be amazing. If we can get a good like homebrew thing together, I'll, I will certainly get ridiculed by my coworkers, but I don't really care. Oh, but the ideal would be to have an entire like three hour um, session, which is us basically taking over the table and running a campaign for an audience, a uh, one yeah. shot. Can the audience hackle us though? Because I have friends. I'm not even kidding. I have friends who do this professionally at Gen Con and at Ren Fairs where they go on stage and they play a live role play game, but they have the audience participation as well. So I don't know. It would be kind of fun, but I could I ask them how to make that work. We I mean, there's definitely examples out there of, of other podcasts that just do straight D and D and other kind of role play games that do do live shows. Like I'm thinking the adventure zone and whatnot, where they're able within, I think two hours to get like, to sometimes pump a game out. Granted, it's condensed, but they're they're still a lot of fun, and I think they're they're good formats to draw upon when doing something like this for a panel. Yeah, it's yeah. definitely part of the long term plan is to, yeah. to, to do stuff like that. I mean, yeah, we, we, have, we, we got six months until the Mac uh, Mid Atlantic Archaeology Conference. Um, you know, request for uh, or yeah, request for abstracts comes out. Call for papers, whatever it's called. The Mac. <laughs> So to switch, you know, to keep it anthropology focused, but also D&D focused, um, I was reading an article yesterday in uh, Mary Sue about how gay D&D has gotten. <laughs> wow. All right. Let's do this. <laughs> Let's just dive right in. Because Good. as an anthropologist, this is, this is actually a very thing, an awesome thing. Um, because uh, f much like a lot of other sort of genre stuff, um, if you're like watching Falling the Gamergate and other sort of these things of toxic fandoms, or if you watch the latest, uh, let's take all the women out of uh, Endgame and, and re-release it. Um, oh, yeah. That happens. Oh, yeah. Awesome. What, what was going on there? There's sort of a, a culture war of sort of some folks who falsely uh, believe that their particular sect or their group um, is, uh, you know, has so controlled a dominion over their particular fandom. Um, uh, but thankfully, uh, D and D over the last few years, over the last 10 years or so, uh, in particular things like, um, best one on top of my head is like critical role, um, has been bringing representation out, which is perfect because I mean, D and D is basically improv theater and you know what, let's bring the theater kids out. And if you bring the theaters kids out, there's going to be some queer there. And that is awesome. <laughs> I'm not a theater kid and I fall into the queer spectrum. So, I mean, you don't have to, I'm just saying, like, I think gaming's always been weird because I have usually been the only girl on a, at a D and D table <clears throat> through most of my life gaming, but I am not the only female character in the um, campaign. <laughs> And recently I have found out that two of the people that I used to long-term game with there for a while, uh, two of them have transitioned. 
and they always played female characters. And so it was very interesting to me that, I mean, I'm not saying that all guys who play female characters are going to transition and vice versa. What I'm saying is, is that it's interesting to me that out of the small group of people that I run with to game with, that two of them transitioned and before they even knew they could, you know, that's something that some people have to discover. Before they could do that, they were using gaming as a uh, coping mechanism, basically, where they could create their ideal self as a as the opposite gender to, you know, kind of get some relief from that. I mean, gaming for me has always been it's always been very therapeutic um, because it's a way it's yes, it's escapism, but you're escaping by creating your ideal self or you're creating like as I got older. I would create characters to challenge myself with. So I would handicap my characters somehow just to see like, how can I interact with the world if I can't do X? And so it's, for me, it's a way of exploring the world. It's very therapeutic. I think everybody should role play. I, I honestly think it would be like the number one thing that would make everybody nice to each other is to role play and put yourselves into other people's shoes. Um, but I think that gaming has always been a little queer and it's just now that it's safer to come out and be openly gay and openly queer and openly trans, like now you're seeing it, but I think it was always there. No, I, I agree with you. I, I would say it probably has always been there from the very beginning. Um, and I think I, I read a similar article of a, a couple months ago that was uh, from a trans gamer uh, who was talking about their you, you know use of the role-playing experience as sort of testing out testing out different the beauty of role playing being is that i can be anybody i want so i'm going to test out different personalities different people different genders uh you know different ideas of what 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 it means to be a person uh and, and that's the freedom that role playing offers uh, whether or not you're currently you know having that internal debate or just something you want to do to grow as a person I want, you know, I, I also see it as, as a great tool, like you mentioned, for empathy. Um, if I'm going to play uh, as a, a female um, who has been downtrodden, I, you know, and then, you know, once you, if you're playing role playing right, at some point you are going to become that person. I mean, so one of the great things about role playing games is there becomes a point where you drop the, my character is doing this to right. I'm doing this. Or you'll come back to friends later, you know, years from now. Remember when we were in that mine and I almost got killed, but thankfully, <laughs> you know, you came through in the last minute and did that. They're not talking about their characters. They're talking about themselves and the experience that they had together. And I think that's one of the awesome things that role-playing games um, have to offer. Remember that one time you went into the, the mine and you drank that potion before we all were able to stop you? Yep, I remember that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Remember how you turned into a green bunny that one time? Or that time Tomog got uh, so drunk he went on a uh, vision quest? <laughs> one time Tomog became a... I had to get the photo somehow. <laughs> <laughs> it's the mechanic. I had to do it. Same <laughs> thing, though. Um, it's an interesting thing. But like, Tomog, I had, to, I had to get the totem. And how did you get the totem? <laughs> you went on a vision quest. Now, why? Why, why well, did you on a vision quest why did it have to you know because i lost the drinking game <laughs> <laughs> i wasn't there for that so i was not aware that's right you were yeah. drinking with the no worry what it was basically like the way you describe it it sounded just like wood alcohol and then uh you no, know it uh, was 
It was um, a uh, venom, like a like a bee venom or or a snake venom that had yeah. been fer- uh, fermented. So we are currently recapping one of the games we recently had oh, yeah. a couple months ago. Yeah, yeah I think, I I think you might have been gone that day, so I basically had your character, Ama, just go like, yeah, I'm not dealing with this. Bye. Oh, no, no, no. I was there because Oh, you I were there for that one? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so basically, Ama's character just followed Tamag around shaking their head the entire time. <laughs> yeah, and waited for the last minute and stole my kill. <laughs> stole my kill. Stole it. Stole it. <laughs> I feel like you probably deserved it. I did. <laughs> my character was kind of me in a tool bag. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, um, this is we've we've had previous role playing experiences, and those are there. So we're hoping to bring those things. Uh, the the yeah. big goal is to bring those things to you, dear viewer. Um, so we're still experimenting. This part of what we're here doing here tonight is sort of experimenting with this sort of video technology. Um, I think we may accidentally be stepping into something that may be something more reoccurring, uh, sort of this chatting thing. It may not be the same format. It may not be the same night. We may not do it for a full two hours. We may only do it for an hour. We may will, may do it that way. But uh, I mean, I, I, we've been generating solid content for about an hour now. It's going it seems to be going okay. I, I'm well, happy. I'm and we haven't even gotten to Benford yet. Yeah. So, <laughs> we kind of did, but not really. Do we, we want to talk about uh, <laughs> or anywhere else we want to go? Yeah. Actually, we haven't even gotten to video games yet. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about let's talk about some, uh, portrayal of archaeology and popular media, and and we can do video games and movies and stuff like that. Most video games and movies about archaeology are bullshit. Okay, we can move on. <laughs> well, yeah. Why? No, no. You can talk about like the intersection though of of like pseudo archaeology, video games and movies, and gaming because they all kind of share well in comics. If you throw that in there too, they all have a common ancestor basically, um, where they get like this weird the the weird bullshit idea of what an archaeologist is and what archaeology is and that whole mysticism of like we're constantly uncovering the latest greatest uh haunted whatever and we're unleashing evil upon the world i mean yeah even one of the most terrifying horror movies ever created supposedly um starts off with an archaeological dig where they're where they're uncovering a which god is that um, Isis, Horus, some of the Mesopotamian. Uh, we, we need Megan here because it's one of the, the Mesopotamian ones. Yeah, Ishtar. Uh, it might be Ishtar. Hold on. That's usually one of the ones that's associated with Zuzu. Okay. Boom. Boom. Anyway. Boom. Uh, yeah, so they, 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 they dig up an image of Pazuzu and it's possessed, and then they take it home and put them in it put it in their attic, and then the little girl becomes possessed by a demon, the demon Pazuzu. Um, well, I think your, you know, your, your good friend Jeb Carr would put it, it's it's all the fault of Lovecraft and the Victorians. It's, it's the Victorians first, and then Lovecraft, but yes. Um, <laughs> no, actually, Jeff, like, uh, thank you for that. Jed has a, an amazing book. Oh, oh God. Falling off my shelves. Got it. Right here, also. <laughs> mine's better, because mine's hardback and, and, oh. and 
Oh no, oh no, it gets better. Hang on. Where to go? Where to go? <gasps> it's signed. Fancy. So so Jeb, I hope you are watching for this shameless plug we're giving you right now. I mean in this book, it's pretty cool. You know, it's not shameless though. It's a really good book. And you probably you sold know, another hundred books right now because we showed it on the air. Honestly, this is a really good book. This is I wish existed when I was going through college because it's just, but like uh, some of his chapters are uh, supernatural relics and occulted archeologists. And he also talks about um, relic hunters and haunted museums and um, Cthulhu and the cosmic mythology. So he actually talks a lot about the common roots. Uh, I don't think he gets into like game gaming in here, but he does talk about like pop, fi uh, pop culture and that kind of, no, I meant it, pop fiction, right? Yes. Anyway, um, but yeah, it, it does kind of go back to the Cthulhu, but he, um, Lovecraft wasn't the only one writing about that kind of stuff. And, and Lovecraft was kind of like part of a larger collective that was doing this kind of thing. I mean, even Conan Doyle was writing about archaeology in a kind of occulted way. So I mean, you've, also, you've got also, um, I was going to ask, does the book actually talk about, you know, archaeologists writing fiction or writing ghost stories? Because there's actually a tradition of that in the UK itself where you have like, I want to say like probably more antiquarians at that point in time who both publish travel logs. Archaeology. Yeah. Cause I think yeah, that's yeah. important too, to recognize that within, you know, the discipline's history as well is the fact that, you know, there's been contributions by, you know, archeologists for, for all terms of the word that, that have really initially contributed to that kind of sensationalism, I guess. And that, mm -hmm. that, that, that supernatural element within archeology. span Yeah. Well, the last chapter of the book is um, Revenge of Alternative Archaeology, which I think, if nothing else, like if you can't ever read anything else of the book, you should read that last chapter because he really sums up his arguments there about how basically because um, academic and, and professional, professional archaeology kind of checked out and we kind of just left the field there for like 40 years or something crazy. Mm -hmm. like, And in that amount of time, that was when all of the alien abductions started becoming a thing and you start seeing the shows like in search of and 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 sagan was trying to like preach about skepticism and, and all of this shit's happening and professional archaeology is basically silent through that entire time and so one of the things that jeb talks about is how our symbolism is taken away and it's co-opted by alternative pseudo-archaeology and you see that when you're reading things like Graham Hancock's book, because I have to read that right now, so you all have to suffer along with me. <laughs> he really is. like At the same time that he will completely go out of his way to badmouth professional archaeologists and how petty we are and how stupid we are and how this we are and how that we are, he'll then turn around and use our own tools to kind of try to prove his point. Like He'll try to use a C-14 date or what he thinks is a C-14 date to support an argument that he's trying to come up with. And it's like, A, you don't know what you're doing and B, quit being a petty asshole. But it's his book. His book is currently one of the top selling archeology span books. Number three on the New York Times bestseller. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Name me one archeology span book written by an actual archeologist talking about actual archeology span that's on the bestseller list right now. I think it will. Sorry, hold on. I'm pulling it up right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, uh, it's on the, it's specifically on the science list. Sarah's book doesn't come out until next month, and that's when it'll probably. Oh, sorry, uh, I dropped. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Her book is coming out, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. 
that'll that'll be up there pretty high. I hope so. If, if you're still interested in the topic, uh, there's um, a couple of articles I know out of the UK as well that, that discuss pseudo-archaeology um, actually came out of, of UCL as well. So I think it, um, Tim Shadlahal and, and Gabe Mishenska both have uh, uh, some really fun articles on, on pseudo-archaeology. Um, and, yeah, and it's probably keep this my way. That'd be awesome. I can do oh, that. No. Oh, I looked at the Amazon bestseller lists. Don't do that. <laughs> Why did you do that? I guess I wanted to be sad. <laughs> sad. <laughs> Number one is fingerprint of the gods. Are you looking in archaeology specifically? Yeah. Yeah. And then like three or four versions of Lost City of the Monkey God. Which is also which is kind of But do you do you also think that this kind of trend is not good? It's there itself. Sorry, what were you saying? Uh, do you, I mean, do you think this trend intersects with the fact that, you know, the conversation we were having earlier about doing an RPG at a conference, you know, the fact that, you know, we, you, you may or may not receive, you know, some kind of chiding from the community at large, thinking that this is not what a professional archaeologist does, you know, is, is that kind of mass consumption or fictionalized, even fantastical works? I feel like it's. I don't know. I think it's moving. We're moving towards at least. Well, in the Twitter microcosm, <laughs> um, we seem to be moving towards that. We need to be doing more popular media outreach because we're we're just not competing with the pseudoscience right now. We're just we're we're yeah, just blown out of the water. We're not. It's not even a. It's not a competition. We're not even the same division. It's just. Yeah, there we don't exist. We're not, we're, we don't exist on there on that same plane. And I, th I think this is actually one spot where like the contract archaeologists or, or the non like tenure track uh, or the aspiring uh, uh, academic archaeologist uh, has an advantage. Um, we don't have the same stigma that certain departments will have. I know people who are in academics who want to be more involved in this uh, sort of combating, be more public, um, but not not even necessarily fighting pseudo-archaeologists, just, just doing public outreach in general. Um, but they're getting internal pressure about what what uh, journal articles do you get? Are you being published? Uh, what kind of grant money are you bringing in? Um, so they're getting these sort of internal pressures within the academic structure, which sort of precludes them from uh, engaging in, in in sort of a more public outreach. I mean, a lot do, and I and I know, and they're doing great stuff. But I know there's a lot who are being sort of stymied um, because of this sort of uh, passion towards publication that that sort of has overtaken a lot of universities. So those of yeah, yeah, publish or die, uh, yeah, that model. So um, for those of us who don't have to worry about that type of uh, concern, it gives we have more freedom. Um, no one at no one you know no one I work for is going to care if I go on the internet and talk about gaming and archaeology, and I will not be looked at any differently because they already think I'm a big nerd. So you know. <laughs> I, you know, I, I mean, go ahead. My 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 company has has certain guidelines for social media and things like that, but basically, it's just don't talk about confidential projects. Right. Yeah. Pretty much it, and and you know, don't don't talk trash about agency people or clients or you know things. Very very, just be a professional. Like it's very, <laughs> very anyway. But 
when I first started doing the pseudo archaeology <laughs> thing, um, and I still get this sometimes in the field when I mention it, um, people don't understand why. Like they don't understand why I'm bothering. Oh, it's a waste of time. Everybody knows it's entertainment. Ha. Huh? Um, and when I very first started out writing, I uh, writing the blog, I did try to reach out to more professional academic uh, archaeologists because I wanted to interview real people about these kind of things. And um, I got some outright hostile responses to the, to my requests. And and I don't feel. I mean. I'm not the best query letter writer, but I'm not that bad. And it wasn't until after the podcast took off. And I think Ken actually helped quite a bit here. Ken, he gave me a little bit of credibility. Um, but after that, people still, every now and then I still reach out to somebody and they're like, oh, no, 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 no. So I think there is a, a stigma out there. Um, and you think it does impact the professional academic branch, maybe even the public archaeology branch, a little bit more than it impacts us, but only because they're so much more front facing to the public. I mean, I know that sounds really weird because when you're your your chances of encountering a CRM archaeologist are much higher than your chances of encountering an academic or a public archaeologist in the wild. But like Tom was saying, there's as long as I'm not bad mouthing the company I'm working for or telling about anything that I'm digging at the time. I'm fine. I can I can pretty much do whatever I want as long as I'm not being an absolute jackass. But you know, a professional or a, an academic person, they they say the wrong thing to the wrong <laughs> it gets recorded at the wrong place and somebody sees it and they could lose their jobs just because yeah. they're on the bad side of somebody. So I understand the hesitance there. Yeah, and especially for for agency positions where they are potentially political politically uh, motivated. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not part of academia because the politics, I just, mm, just crazy talk. I've actually got a good story about that specifically for academics regarding ancient aliens. So um, I took a couple in undergrad. I took a couple of, um, well, I was an art history, well, sorry, I was a history of art major because Ohio State doesn't have an art history uh, major. Um, my, my undergrad degree is in history. I ended up searching again anyway. Um, <laughs> Um, but I ended up taking a East Asian art history class, and part of that class was the discussion of a uh, Buddhist um, like temple cave complex in southern India. That um, the I started watching it because it was talking about the specific uh, the, the episode because it was talking about the specific temple complex. Because I was like, oh, that's familiar. Let me let me see what they have to say about it. And actually interviewed you know uh, local archaeologists, so actual actual like. In Indian archaeologists, South Asian archaeologists um, at the site, um, who gave a good description of what the site is, everything they know, you know, things they know about it, and also a professor of mine did an interview. It looks like it looked like some sort of stock interview or a, for something else. Cause it looked like it was older than the actual episode, but they just kind of clipped it into the beginning of the episode, and it was all like. You know, uh, you know there there's a solstice window here, and the uh, images in the in the or the frescoes or not fresco murals in the temple depict the you know previous lives of the Buddha, blah blah blah, and um and then it, like the music changes and it's like, but actually they couldn't have possibly painted these things if they hadn't actually seen them. So there were definitely people with horse heads. Like it was. Um, <laughs> it completely removes any kind of agency or imagination from 
from you know, people of color, local, you know, um, and it it, it, it it kind of really solidified that racist colonial theory that is the core of ancient aliens. Yeah. I thought it was interesting when I was interviewing um, Left Coast Notes on Twitter. Uh, she and I sat down and talked about um, the Shamala. Um, I'm not going to do that word because I'm going to butcher it. Anyway, she she studies these specific kind of um, the fossil. Yeah. yeah, but they're considered holy relics um, by the groups that she studies. But she was telling me that ancient aliens apparently is really popular with the conservative politicians in India because because of the messages that it brings about like superiority and, and that kind of stuff. And it's, it's interesting to me that it's being co-opted by groups outside of the U S for political reasons in order to like create a power play there. And it's terrifying personally, I think that yeah. that's occurring. Yeah. Um, Shalagrams. Yeah. Shalagrams. Uh, yeah. I think it's John. Yeah. She'll talk later. <laughs> I hope. I'm sorry. They look, they look super cool, and I yeah, think that they're, they're cool. you know, they can go facts that have been turned into cultural items. Mm-hmm. But can I, I guess, link chat? Hmm? Uh, I can link her thread. Yeah, she just got a really great picture of them up too. Yeah, several, several really cool pictures of them. Yeah. Let me see if I can find the thread start. I think I published that podcast. That yeah. You retweeted it at some point also. But let me see if I can just find her thread. Yeah, but just show some of her pictures because she's got really pretty stuff. Yeah. Uh, uh, here we go. Do we want? Do we want to loop back into to gaming specifically at all and kind of talk about you know examples that we either love or, or hate or hate to love. Well, I guess to, to sort of tie back into sort of the idea of like misappropriating cultures and things like that is I'm hopefully this weekend, um, you'll see on the same channel, my beginning to sort of like uh, attempt to try to replay the Tomb Raider from 2013, uh, the relaunch uh, of the game. Um, where I'll be sort of voicing over it. I don't know yet whether I'll do it live or record it and upload it, but uh, but with that game, um, you know, it tries to sort of more officially make Laura Croft an, an aspiring archaeologist, a trained archaeologist, um, but it's, it's sort of, once again, sort of steeps into sort of this these sort of oriental, orientalist tropes about this sort of like, you know, weird, mysterious culture stuck on this island with some mystic relics um a long secret that's been hidden and you have to find the hidden secret and it's going to take the you know western woman from the uk uh to unlock this thing you couldn't possibly have the uh you know anyone indigenous understand their own island or culture um but you know i'll explore that more as i'm playing the game but you know that that classic idea i mean uncharted does this uh in their games of like hey let's bring in the outsider who's going to turn around and find this thing even though all these local people uh are there and uh so i sorry it makes me all think about like one of my favorite jokes from undergrad 
um, we were, I was in this uh, theory of archaeology class, and we were talking about uh, the Maya. And uh, we were, you know, Tiwatakanaka was being discussed and things like that. And sort of the, uh, the idea of using modern tourism and how they sort of create um, simulacra simulations of, of the area. Uh, through that, and how like one of the sort of funny, obvious jokes that you'll see from the Westerners, they're not necessarily intentionally doing the joke. Is you know like, you know like it's the idea of, like whatever happened to the Maya? And in the class, it was basically point reminding the entire class is like nothing. They're right here. They're the ones <laughs> selling you the, uh, the the cheap souvenirs. They're the ones who are your tour guides. The Mayans didn't go anywhere. They're not a lost civilization. They are living people uh, who are still there. And sort of that erasing of uh, indigenous people. I mean, it's 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 a common thing throughout the country. I mean, it's happened in the United States all over the place with sort of native communities of like, uh, you know, like in the late 19th century, you have the entire idea of, you know, oh, well, the dying out. We're sending anthropologists out because we got to record the uh, natives because they're all about to die. And it's well, like, no, the, we're still here. <laughs> the languages are not doing super great because of, well, you know, well, what, what the, the the Christian schools or whatever, uh, but they're not gone. And this was actually this is, and that's how I called Scott Walter a racist. Um, <laughs> <laughs> wow, I don't feel like he gets called that enough. Well, yeah, I mean that was that was the whole the, the conversation. I don't even know how we even got there. He said, "Well, I I started saying that the Mandan of today are not." True Mandan, they're not pure blood Mandan. And that's a quote. Pure blood. Yeah, I, said. Yeah, I have a screenshot of it. I called him a racist, and then he said that wasn't necessary, and I said it absolutely was. <laughs> and then he tried to defend himself. And you know how he defended himself? For a he was, while. I I know I know people who are Native American. Therefore, everything I have to say now, God, that man. Anyway. Oh, speaking of which, so did he find the the real killer uh, from London, the the Ripper? Yes, it's apparently. Uh, I don't know if you followed Ken's thread at all, but um, <laughs> apparently, um, Conan Doyle is Sir Arthur. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle is Jack the Ripper, um, because of course he is. Because Mason in uh something yes exactly it's because conan doyle was a mason um which of course he was i mean i'm not even being of course he was he was a victorian yeah. guy he would have been a, a mason um of the upper echelon anyway the he he claims that conan doyle fits the description of the ripper to a t because the description we have of the ripper is a white man in his late 20s, early 30s with dark hair and who wore a pea coat, a suit, and a red muffler. And I'm like, so that's like all of the men in the Victorian era. Um, yeah. So apparently because he, of that, oh, and he was a doctor. Yeah. Uh, that was the selling point is he yeah. was a medicine and doctor. Um, I like the uh, every time he saw some sort of inscription, he would just give it a date. Right, like he just looks at. You know, he actually claims that he created. What did he? Was what does he call it? The Kensington Stone. 
No. What are we? What are we? Oh, oh, uh, or something like. Yeah, and he's like, "No, no, it's accurate." And I'm like, "Well, that explains why no one uses it." So. That man. I was. I'm impressed with how long you talked to him. Honestly. I was I was struggling at the end there. The one that really got on my nerves is I actually read through the excerpts of the paper that he's put out because he hasn't actually published that technical report anywhere. No, because um, no. He, put, he published a, a a review, which he refers to as a peer review, um, on his blog. He has no clue what peer review is. Well, somebody yeah, in the office probably looked it over. Oh yeah. No, no it was it was it was some other geologist looked at it and said, you know, these things look okay, these things are a little weak. And I mean that's an evaluation, that's not a peer review. Yeah, that's that's like that's comments from a colleague. That's not yeah. Yeah. And the issue I had with it was that the um the analog that he used to determine how old it was was a stone from near Augusta, Maine, out of the, I'm assuming the same material, but it doesn't actually say. Right, exactly. Right, I wasn't able to find whether or not it's the same material. I assume it is. Um, I wouldn't. And looked at the climate information between Kensington, Minnesota, and the Augusta is like the next closest city to whatever the town was that this tombstone is from. And there's, it's the, the, um, the it's like, on average, like four or five degrees warmer and twice the amount of precipitation, which I don't know about. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a geologist, but I think that has an effect on weathering. Just saying. He is so, (coughs) we could just turn this into the Scott Walter hate hour if you want, but. (laughs) Can we make a game of it though? (laughs) I'd I'd like to avoid what a libel. (laughs) It's only liable if I'm saying things that aren't true. Ah, fair enough. This is but, this is my opinion. I am not an expert. Games. This is a game that I picked up at Gen Con. It I can't is. Read really, the first word. I know it's reverse. I don't know why. It's called "This Belongs in a Museum." I like it. Why is mine reverse? Anyway, it's it's put out by Rather Dashing Games, which I love. Um, fun story though. This game, the Rather Dashing Games. Do you guys remember Taps, the the Ghost Hunters? Yeah. 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 One of the founding members of this game company is uh, the bald guy off of Tap. No, the guy with hair off of Taps. Oh, interesting. Nice. He went from ghost hunting to game making. He's actually a really nice guy. Um, and he was the skeptic on the show anyway. So, like, I have very, very little problems with him. But the interesting thing I like about this game, I mean, you can see the tropes are already there. I mean, look, mm. those are the characters you get to play. You know, you've got not problematic at all. Right. And I mean, but this is the kind of thing like this is not intentional. This is him. Well, I mean, the characters themselves are intentional because he's trying to invoke certain things. Right. He's got Indiana Jones. He's got Sala. He's got I don't know who she's supposed to be, but clearly she's like stereotypical woman who happens to be an archaeologist. And then you've got Professor Dry as Dust there who also happens (laughs) to be kind of bougie. <laughs> well, they all have to be bougie and archaeologists because, as we all know, archaeologists super bougie. <laughs> yeah, somehow we all have money. Yeah. But like one of the premises of this game is that you go around and you collect um, relics, 
relics and artifacts. And basically you're cutting your opponent off from being able to excavate in different areas. It's, it's a tile game. It's a lot of fun actually. And it moves pretty fast once you start playing it. Um, but it's playing off of all of those, those tropes, you know, it's playing off of the trope of, oh yeah. And then there's zombies. You can use the zombies to block what? your opponents. Not zombies. zombies. Zombies, sorry. I'm trying to see. Yeah. See, those are the relics you're looking for. Oh no. <laughs> It makes no sense because there's no culture affiliation with any of this. It's just like random, random shit, basically. There's like, oh, it definitely looks like they tried to make it kind of slightly global. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. I mean, I, I got to give them that much. And then there's like, this is the tomb and there's zombie pieces. There they, are. there they are. I keep calling them zombies. There's the mummy pieces. You can use the mummies to block your opponents from being able to go to certain spots. Like I said, it's a fun little game, but. It's a treasure hunting game, right? It's a treasure <laughs> hunting game. But archaeology because I don't think they're being mean. I think that's what they think archaeology is. I'm, I'm and, they have, add, and they have no reason know. not to. Um, exactly. Because that's, that's, that's how it's been presented in pop culture. You, I mean, go back to the 1930 Boris Karloff mummy movie. Go back to, you know, King Solomon's Mines, yep. the book, which I've been reading recently because I'm using that as partial inspiration for our campaign. Inspiration? Inspiration. <laughs> but I got this, I get some other games too. And this is a puzzle game. It's like, they call it a locked room game, but this one's called The Pharaoh's Tomb. And they've got another one that's like Night at the Museum. And you have to solve riddles to progress through the game. And I haven't worked this one yet, so I'm not going to open it. But because you can only do this once, it's kind of annoying. Anyway, <laughs> so wait, it's, it's like it's uh, like um, it's like a what call What are those things called? This an escape room, but in, like in a in a game format. Yeah, it's exactly what it is. It's really, I mean, the the one I played was really fun. Um, <clears throat> it took me forever to get through it. You can play it by yourself, or you can play it with a group. Um, but you can only play it once, or one per you. Like, I could play it and then give it to one of you, but, you know, once you've solved all the riddles, you've solved all the riddles. Right. But I, if you compare it to the one that I did, it's got a lot of, like, imagery. This one's got a lot of Egyptian imagery on it. You know, you've got to translate hieroglyphics. You've got to, like, get away from the thing before it gets you kind of a, a scenario. But, again, it goes back to that whole, like, that trope. Um, Andrew Reinhardt shared an article... God, months ago now, that literally was titled as Does Bad Archaeology Make Good Games? So, yeah, what have you got? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, even yeah. role-playing games have uh, gotten into this yeah. uh, with history. Yeah. This one's a Northern Northern Crown. Northern this Crown. It's My boss actually recommended we look into this one because I told him about the it's it reimagines it's a sort of an alternate history of colonial about the 17th century uh north america um with magic but it still has it's a funny thing about this game i mean they're like seventh seas kind of but they rename sort of the european care colonies and and and, and nations but the natives they keep with their own names like you have. I'm trying to get some of the. Uh, of course, now I'm trying to find the. Uh, well, you, have well, the well. you have the you have the Vinlanders. You have the. That's Sophi like seven, man. Sophians. 
who are like the free thinkers and rebels and you the the witchlings sort of a, a, a puritan type people and then you have the cherokee who are the the cherokee <laughs> are they all the natives all of the natives are cherokees no 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 they use a couple oh, a couple other tribes in there i think are there i think the iroquois might be in there too yeah they might be well, in there. Quick, while, while bill's looking um just kind of a just to clarify with the Scott Walter stuff, um, I, I am not an expert on geology. Uh, I don't I don't pretend to know better than him because I again I don't have a degree in this. I don't the, the most geology I do is what I do with it at work, just identifying material for the most part. Um, and while I did call him I did call him a racist, um, uh, I, I I do not. I mean, we're all we all have our racial biases. I mean, I'm I'm a I'm a cishet white dude, middle class. Like I, I have no room to speak on any of this really. Um, but um, uh, I mean, I, I don't think he did it out of out of maliciousness. I think it's out of ignorance, and I think that's part of the thing that you know, ignorance is the problem, though. If it was yeah, malicious, that's, that's the thing that we need to work against. Yeah, if it was malicious, it would at least be understandable. It's it's the fact that he doesn't even understand that he's being racist. Yeah. And that he's propagating racist ideas and that he's creating racist narratives and then passing those along to other people who pick them up and run right. with them. I mean, no, I don't think any of these people are actively being racist, but right. But they, they are propagating are racist ideology. Racist out of ignorance. Right. And they're they're definitely propagating racist ideology, except for uh, you know, um what's his name? Von Danikin, who who is just a racist. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think he's at, actually straight out and said some things that are just like, oh, okay, well. Oh, to the book. Yeah, we, it, we know it, 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 right. At least you're being honest. It's yeah, code. Like, oh, okay, well, there you go. <laughs> All right. And, and so to go back to the Northern Crowns uh, with some of the races, first off, yeah. the Europeans are called Europeans. You, there's no E at the beginning, it's a Europeans. Uh, you have the Europeans. Albians. Who are basically uh, the English? You have the uh, Samarians, who are the free blacks. Um, in the game, they try not to like talk about slavery, uh, which is a big, like, a huge omission if you're going to be talking about uh, 18th century North America and, and yeah. not talk about the uh, slave trade. Um, so which, we of course, I absolutely get is uh, um, because one of our early drafts of trying to put this together was to sort of lean more into sort of a colonial period uh, thing. Right. And then, okay, we wanted to be honest to this, so we need to discuss slavery. But how do you role play slavery? Guess what? Yeah. It's, it's hard, and I haven't figured it out yet. That would be in any sort of way that would be uh, respectful and, and to the respectful idea. to the topic. Um, right. Just and, I mean, honestly. Do any of us have a right to, you know, put our put ourselves in those shoes, kind of thing? Well, right. you know, it's really interesting because I belong to a couple different writing groups, and uh, one of the writing groups I belong to is very heavily minority, which is kind of nice. I live in Philly; I'm usually outnumbered, and it's fan fucking tastic. Um, but I brought that question up. I was like, I want to write characters who aren't. I want to have characters who aren't white in my books, you know, when I'm not writing about aliens. And I'm like, but I don't want it to just be like, here's placeholder, not white person. And I'm like, how do I, how do I do that without trying to seem like I'm telling your story? And the women I've spoken with are all like, it's don't tell our story, but you can't not have us in the book either. Because it's, if I ignore that 
that there are people of color, then even if I'm doing it for the right reason, it's still achieving the same goal. And, it, and you know, I'm still erasing them from the narrative. So like with the, the slavery thing, I, I don't think we can tell the slavery story, but having a slavery element in a game that we have to interact with, I don't think is a bad thing because like with this game that you're talking about, they're working really, really hard not to have slavery in there, but yet they have free blacks. Right. They're acknowledging slavery, but they're refusing to tell the story. Like you can't have free blacks if you don't have enslaved ones. Right. So we're only going to tell about the good part of it and we're going to ignore the bad I don't know if it's the place of games to challenge social norms, but I think I think it's cowardly not to. I think games are the best way to do it because you create a safe environment where people can interact with something that might be painful, but they can interact with it in a way that is safe to them. And I think role play should and it should acknowledge that and interact with it. I don't think any of us specifically should be playing if we were to play that game. I don't think what? any of us should be playing a slave or a free black. I mean, it's just, right. I just feel like that would be ingenuous, especially as an adult. I, I, as an adult gamer, I understand why that's not a great idea, but having a few as the GM, unfortunately having a few of them for us to interact with is not out of the storyline. Yeah, no, I mean, this brings us back to sort of another theoretical $10 word um, are all of our characters, whether non-player characters or the player characters need to have agency. Um, if you're telling a story, uh, uh, you know, to avoid stereotypes, a person must, you know, a character, sorry, playing with my hair too much. Uh, a character should have agency. They should have their own motivations, their own lives there. They were here before the story began. They do something in your story and then they go off stage and their story continues. Um, if you're writing good, if you're writing good characters, um, that's how it should be. Um, so, you know, the, 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 the best, it's the best way to sort of honor that is to, they are not a living embodiment of a stereotype. They are a full fledged creature who happens to interact with your story and then goes off to their continue their own adventure someplace else. I think uh, really take your story off the rails and decide to go follow them instead. So yes, well that is role playing and that is tabletop role playing one on one right there. Where I you know I'm going to write like a hundred pages of like detailed orient thing, and then you see a cat walking down an alley, and you're going to follow that cat and just oh yeah, I'm following that cat. And then we just have a completely different story than everything I, I had mapped out. I, I feel for Matt Mercer on Critical Role when I see him take a piece of paper and just rip it up. Like, I guess we're not doing that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we can. I think we can still maybe work in a playable. I don't want to call it a playable like subjugated culture or or that's not the word I want. What's the word I want? Maybe the subjugated. Yeah, I think that is the word I want. Maybe, but not like just make it clear that it is—it's not supposed to be the same. It's supposed to be this old other thing that we created, and kind of fills the same niche. But it's not—it's just we're not—we're not pretending to have that same experience. It's just if we were put in that situation, how do we think we would deal with it? Right. It's a way of talking about slavery without talking about chattel slavery in the Americas from the 15th through 19th century. Well, I mean, it's perfectly fine to draw that parallel, though, as long as we're acknowledging the fact that 
we are interacting we're interacting with it as outsiders like you know we, we can't understand the slave story like none of us can i mean even even those of us who might have like slave history we can't interact with that we can't speak to it. it is not our current it's not how we live currently it has not affected our lives currently but if someone else were to come into the game who wants to give it a shot because they think they have the ability to do so i i would be i don't know it would depend on the person it's a it's a, it's a case by case basis but i don't think writing it out of a game completely is a good idea unless you're just going to be like this world has never had slavery ever i mean that being said if someone out there <laughs> wants to put together the nat turner fan fiction where the Nat Turner Rebellion is victorious, and all the player characters are part of that rebellion, oh, uh, killing all the uh, killing all the uh, slave owners and uh, and and liberating the, uh, the colony. Then, boom! Uh, sign me up. I want to play on that game. <laughs> I want that board. I want that Did to be a board, see the, uh, board game. <laughs> what was the? Didn't they make a? Uh, they redid Birth of a Nation, but it was centered around Nat Turner. Well, they took the title "Birth of a Nation" and it was yeah. about the Nat Turner they, Rebellion. Yeah, they were reading it. They just oh, yeah. took the like, title. Was yeah. there a big blow up about that? And that was why. They what? There was a big blow up about that because then the movie came out, and of course, well, the title for the movie came out. Everybody was pissed off because of that. People who understand what right. that movie's about. So there was that right. initial blow up, and then the actual movie came out, and everybody who was expecting it to be "Birth of a Nation" were really pissed off that it wasn't "Birth of a Nation," and I was just like. If you went to that movie expecting a, a nice glowing story talking about the nobility of the Ku Klux Klan and how they're going to defend the honor of the women of the South, uh, well, fuck you, and you deserve to be disappointed. I was, okay. I was, Second like the, the, the initial outrage I understood because I was like, why? Why are you making that movie? Why now are you making that movie? And then you know, you get the whole story and you're like, oh, all right. The symbology of the oppressor. I like it. I'm into that. Yeah. Alma's been quiet, I think. Alma, no, it's, it's okay. I've been trying to find, like, background information. Like, again, I said, I want to make sure that anybody in chat, if they don't know what we're talking about, like, <laughs> I, I wanted to kind of provide that context. And just, just, just quiet. Screw those people. Oh, no. So That's okay. Just in case I, case I know. So, they have people. Yeah. so uh, um, to go, now to go way back to talking about video games again, um, <laughs> as, uh, I mean, this, and this, trust me, if this is completely out of your range, um, call me on it. Um, but as our only sort of like Japanese uh, cultural expert mm. um the use of sort of japanese myth and, and culture within the the relaunch game of uh tomb raider have you had a chance to play that game sort of you know i i actually have not but i do know some of the historical uh background of it and, and it is historical in some regards because it deals with um um actually a piece uh, an annual from chinese history okay. uh that informs a lot of Japanese archaeology. Um, the uh, So archaeology is actually more aligned with history in Japan. 
than it is um, with anthropology. And so a lot of that is wrapped up with the um, kind of national identity in Japan, as well as national history and people's history. And uh, so Himiko, uh, who I believe is a central figure in, in that game. Am I, am I correct in that? She's yeah. the MacGuffin. Yeah. Yes. Um, that ties to a Chinese historical text, which through... Um, some interpretation has been associated closely with prehistoric uh, prehistoric culture uh, on Japan. And so I know that much, but if I remember correctly from the movie, she's on an island somewhere and not even, I don't think it's even one of the Japanese mainland islands. I, I Isn't it off of like Okinawa or, or somewhere between Okinawa and Taiwan or something like that? Was that the movie? That's the movie, yeah. Yeah, it was not horrible. It wasn't great. It was pretty close to the gameplay, to be honest. Yeah. So I haven't listened to the latest uh, Women in Archaeology uh, podcast, which finally got around to uh, discussing that movie. Uh, Sarah, were you were you on that uh, show when they were talking about the movie? Yeah, but we recorded that like last year. Oh, it just came out like a couple weeks ago. Uh, no, what's happening is we're updating the feed. Oh, it probably just got reposted. But yeah, <laughs> I, I was on that episode. Please go listen to our feed. It's getting updated. There's a um, monetized board game. Oh, yeah. So now that we're almost two hours into this, we should do more plugging. Um, I'm I'm a co-host on the uh, CRM Archaeology Podcast, uh, part of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Um, Sarah, of course, is Archie Fantasies is coming back. She's also a, a co-host uh, on the uh, I, Women in Archaeology I, I, Podcast. I am- I am occasionally occasional guest, a panelist on the Women in Archaeology podcast. That that is predominantly Chelsea, Kirsten, and Emily. I'm I'm very very proud of them. I really am, but I can't really claim too much about that one. Uh, anyone else have any plugs they need to do or want to do uh, right now oh. about associations? Oh, oh, I don't have any media outlets but i'll plug aitc again i'll I'll put the link in the chat to their um to their website um i was gonna volunteer with them and i just never was able to get my shit together to do it it's i mean and now i'm too far away i think i think part of it is that alex has been running this by herself basically for about 10 years and it's hard like she forgets that other people aren't inside her head sometimes no, it really was like, no, she sent me all the information. She's like, fill this out, yeah. do this, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, it was when I was living in Virginia. And I was just like, man, I cannot get my life together enough to do this. And which yeah. I really regret because it sounds like a freaking fantastic program. It's it's absolutely amazing. Um, it's uh, it, So the, the whole concept is that it, it is community-based archaeology, community projects, community education. Um, a lot of the programs that we run are education programs for underserved youth, um, specifically the um, the uh, Young Archaeologist Club is is um, has been run for a while now. We uh, we were able to for the past uh, year make it completely free because of a generous grant from the Jack and Jill Foundation, um, and uh, we were able to bring in it's about it's about twenty five kids per class or so. Um, I might have that number wrong, but um, but uh, everything is completely free. They meet. We meet for a couple hours every Sunday uh, for about six weeks. 
um, and uh, we take them to a museum. We try to take them to an active dig site if we can. Um, they learn about archaeology. So I mean, all, all the kids are great. They're I mean, it's it's been extremely rewarding for me just trying to like. I, I feel like I'm selling my soul a little bit doing a lot of this contract archaeology, but it's definitely helpful for writing. Fun. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's 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 certainly a challenge because I'm used to working with like full grown adult <laughs> volunteers and and you know field school students and things like that, uh, and and trying to break it like and and this is something that I've I've found that the the more I have to teach a subject and the more I have to break it down to its simplest pieces, the more I can understand that subject. So actually trying to teach children about archaeology is I mean it's I'm I'm learning a lot as I go. Um, um, Alex is fantastic. I, I do not have the energy or charisma she does, and I, I am I'm amazed every time I work with her. Um, um, but uh, we are always always fundraising at all times. There's a link on the website um, if you. I mean, and, and any any little bit helps. You want to throw five ten bucks in there. I mean, that'll that'll it it, it all adds up. So um, please think about doing that uh we do have an event coming up on july hold on <laughs> i just forgot what night what day it was uh the day of archaeology something something festival uh it, at the dumbarton house in northwest dc if you live in the dc area um uh, it is july my web page will load um, it's on, it's on, it's on the website. You'll be able to find it. Um, if you just go to the events, it'll come up. Uh, but it is July 20, July 20 is a Saturday. It is free. Uh, archeology span groups from all over the area are, uh, show up and put up tables and have little interactive exhibits and things like that. There are kids activities. There's usually a oh. DJ and it is completely free to attend. Just show up. If you want to make a donation, that's super cool too. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's the thing that I work on. Okay. Well, I see we're we're about ten minutes left, um, so now would be a good time um, if anybody has anything that they've wanted to say or wanted to make sure we we talked about uh, during this sort of inaugural episode uh, to sort of get out now, and we can have that discussion right now. Um, or <laughs> I say we had a special yeah. guest right there. <laughs> Uh, we had a first live comment, <laughs> but uh, if there's anything that you want to talk about now, or sort of like maybe a summary statement, if if, if there's anything you want, uh, I want to poke Alma. Say that again. Said I want to poke you. You want to poke me? Why do you want to poke me? What do you want to poke me about? You got anything else you want to say before we take off? Oh, uh, that's a good question. Sorry, I've been a little quiet. It is, um, as as was said, we're we're in the morning of of. It's it's Friday morning here, and I, I don't think my brain has woken up for the whole past two hours. So, um, awaken on your toes right at this yeah. moment. <laughs> so, uh, no, my my apologies. I'm gonna I'm gonna work on on being a better contributor in this regard. No, um, I I still have a lot of projects in the works that I'd like to to hopefully bring about in kind of conjunction with this project. I'm I'm really excited to be a part of it. And I think it will bring up a lot of really great information, conversation, dialogue, which which I think is is really important. And so, if you have any questions um, regarding 
Japanese archaeology. Um, <laughs> uh, I can definitely handle those on my my Twitter or my Instagram. But as of right now, in terms of projects to plug and whatnot, I, I don't really have much outside of my, my personal uh, social media. And I, I just put our Twitter tags up in the chat. Perfect. Thank you. Yay. Yeah, I don't really have anything going on right now. We just wrapped up the first round of What's Up Archaeology. It went really well, and it's all still live. Um, that was really my only major side project that didn't deal directly with my social media. Um, and as soon as I answer my email, I'll be working with um, Digital Hammurabi on their YouTube channel doing oh, huh. archaeology-based videos for them. Yeah, they are, they're my intern. They're going to be my internship so that I can finish up my master's degree. And I'm really happy that they decided to work with me because like, while I've been doing my master's degree, it's gonna be a, a master's in CRM, but like doing it the way that I did it, which I don't recommend, um, you really did make me kind of look at what I really actually wanted out of my, my career here. And I think maybe going the science education, science communication way is a lot more what I really wanna be doing. And so they're giving me that opportunity by letting me work with their channel on YouTube, which is why I've been putting up videos lately. So. And which go to um, Archie Fantasies uh, on YouTube to, to see those videos and see those live reactions. And Megan of Digital Habarami used to, was a was a former member of our D and D collective, but her. Uh, schedule she is still in the process of trying to finish her phd and uh, between the phd and her children and the youtube channel gaming just wasn't uh uh you know in in the cards absolutely uh acceptable but she's still a friend uh and we, we you know, go go to her channel they do great stuff her and her husband do great stuff over there if you haven't seen the rap video yet which <laughs> There's a lot to discuss there, but it is actually a really cool video, and her husband does a fantastic job of, is it the Iliad? No, is Gilgamesh. That? It's a story of Gilgamesh. It's a family-friendly story of Gilgamesh done in a very early 90s white guy rap style. Very, yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> But it is awesome. It's a great educational tool. And if you don't know the story of Gilgamesh, it's, it gets all the points across. It really does. It does it pretty quick. It's not very long either. No. Hmm. He skips all the repetitions. <laughs> he does. Yeah. Okay. He also uses what's really interesting about the, the way that he wrote the summary for the rap. He uses the same alliteration techniques in his rap that he wrote that were used to write the Iliad or uh, to write Gilgamesh. So it's the same poetic contaminator, whatever. It's funny. It's good. Go see it. Maybe that was a little too geeky for people. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the link that I dropped in the chat. I hope that's the right one. I don't know, It'll be something else from there. Uh, Tom, you have anything? Uh, I think I think that's it. I think this went very very well. I think. Um, I'm I'm looking forward to like banging out this gameplay stuff so we can start doing that one as well. Okay. Well, I want I want to thank the three of you uh, for joining me today and um, sort of this inaugural episode of uh, Still Digging. Um, I think the Still Digging show is going to to live here on the uh, Archeo Thoughts channel. 
Uh, once the gaming gets up in the place, we might probably, hopefully, set up a separate channel for that, and we'll definitely keep you informed um, if we do do that or if we keep everything on this channel just for convenience sake um, uh, with that. But uh, so, I know we were talking about doing well, it's the idea of the Archeo RPG uh, might become its own entity. Uh, sort of the idea of the collective of all of us is Archeo RPG, and then we have that living someplace else. Yeah. Um, but this one as a as a show, which is like gaming, but also sort of general talk and archaeology, may not. Well, we'll see. We'll see. And if we if we switch this show over there, we'll let you know, uh, so you know where to catch us on there. Um, as of right now. We don't necessarily have the next show scheduled, but keep an eye on the social medias. You got all our Twitters. Uh, yep. We will definitely let be letting everyone know. I have a feeling it would the next episode would probably be at the latest two weeks from now, maybe even next week. Yeah. Um, and if you're you know an archaeologist or a gamer and you're interested in maybe joining us, being part of the conversation uh, here on air with us, please shoot us shoot one of us out uh, a, a DM. Uh, and we'd be more than happy to, to bring you on board and uh, discuss, uh, you know, your interest in archaeology, gaming, pop culture uh, with that. So uh, I want to talk to you. If you're a gamer and you have questions about archaeology, either incorporating it into your game or just like things you've interacted with in a game that you had questions about, feel free to ask us that too. Ask an archaeologist. Yeah, shoot us questions. We'll definitely, like, if you shoot us just questions through there, we will definitely... Uh, include those in our next episode. We'll de de definitely make a point of answering all the questions uh, you guys give us during that time. So um, I think with all that, I think we are done with episode one. Woo! So um, I'll let everyone now say goodbye and then we will let you go to surf other things on the YouTubes. <laughs> Bye. 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 All right. Good, goodbye. Um, I don't have a t ending tagline yet, uh, so I'll just say you still have an hour before watching Critical Role, so we're not going to take up your time for that. So hop over to Twitch, uh, and you can watch Critical Role because um, I'll probably be doing that myself. Um, I know you, we haven't caught up yet, so we, that's why we haven't done much Critical Role talk. Because is still trying to catch up. I'm almost there. I'm almost there. But yeah. if you have watched recent episodes of Critical Role, you have seen her artwork. Yeah, she, I'm she, has been, she has been featured two times so far in the uh, community I art there. Adorable. Thank you very much. I'm aiming, I'm aiming to make more art. So again, if you if you follow me, I'll be dumping a whole lot more Critical Role. <laughs> I like these All right. Doing too on this. <laughs> All right, so here's my here's my first test one. This this might not stick around. So until next time, we're gonna still be digging. See ya. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>
you get access to our Discord server. Still Digging is a product of the Archeo RPG Collective. Once again, thank you for listening, and until next time, keep digging.